Welcome to the podcast of Redeemer Baptist Church of Panama. We hope that you enjoy the sermons and other audio provided by us. Feel free to share what you find here, and we hope that it will be beneficial to you as you seek to know and follow Christ. So, like Jared said, I'm going to do something a little bit different than I've been doing. Instead of doing one uh, kind of separate piece of the scripture and working through it from time to time and everything, I'm going to start working my way through Jude. Uh, So, today I'm going to focus on the first four verses of Jude. So Jude is only 25 verses long. It's written by the half-brother of Jesus and also the brother of James. Jude is almost always linked very closely with Second Peter because of the seemingly direct connection between the two of them in both content as well as the way that they were written. So, for example, Jude 4 says, uh, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord and, and Lord Jesus Christ is very close to what Second Peter 2 1 says. Um, to it. Uh, it says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought, bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Or again, Jude, Jude 7, Jude verse 7, says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Second uh, Peter two six says, "If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly." And one one last one, Jude thirteen says, "Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." Second Peter is. Very similar. Second Peter two seventeen says, "These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved." So there's this direct parallel between the two of them, and these parallels continue with, with throughout Second Peter and throughout Jude, and has actually led some to believe that Jude actually wrote Second Peter as well. Um, this seems much more likely, though, that Peter wrote Second Peter, and that. Uh, Peter's letter was written heavily dependent on Jude's, and not that they were both from the same author. Because of this close connection, a lot of what I will say while going through the book of Jude will draw upon what can be found in Second Peter. Um, but we're not looking at Second Peter right now, we're looking at Jude. So I'm going to start by reading the whole of the book of Jude, just because it's so short, but also because it will help provide an overarching context to what I'm going to say now, today, and then also uh, over the next time, few times that I preach. And then after that, we'll focus more in on the first four verses. So, but first, let us pray. Lord, thank you that we can come before you today and serve and worship you. Please help us to do so with uh, open hearts and open ears to understand your word and to come away with a new understanding of you. Help us to uh, have proper doctrine that we would understand the gospel so that we can defend it and uphold our faith and not be swayed by the different teachings and different perversions of your word. Help us to 
see you more clearly and uh, understand your glory more tonight. In your name, amen. Jude's introduction is somewhat unique among the rest of the New Testament letters and other letters of the time. Um, Starts out, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of, of wait, until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment on all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. So, moving on to look at the first four verses. 
Um, Jude's introduction, like I said, Jude's introduction is somewhat unique among the rest of the New Testament letters and other letters of the time. He starts out by introducing himself as Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Verse 1. The first thing to notice is the word servant. The Greek word for, for that is doulos and can be translated servant, but it can also mean slave. Uh, so if we were to translate Jude's introduction with this context, it would read Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. Uh, you might ask, what difference does it really make if we translate it this way? So oh, more than you would think, actually. <laughs> this term slave connotes an inherent requirement to submit to the will of the master. If the master tells the slave to do something, it is as if he himself, the master, were doing it. The slave doesn't get any credit for his work. The master does. Now think back to Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. immediately before Jesus gives the Great Commission, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is the same Jesus that Jude is enslaved to. Jude's master is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And since we have already seen a slave's work is the direct outpouring of the master's wishes, then we can safely say that Jude is writing his letter with the same authority as Christ himself. So this book is as if Christ were writing it himself. His letter is a representation of Christ. So when Jude says that he is a slave of Jesus Christ, he is in essence saying, I am a slave of Christ. Therefore, it is not just me who is speaking to you, but Christ through me. And you should treat my letter as such. But he doesn't just stop there. He continues on saying, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James. We, now, we don't know exactly who James is, but it seems most likely to be James, the half-brother of Jesus. And then using a little logic, we can figure out that if Jude was the half-brother of James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, that means Jude is also the half-brother of Jesus. So, Jude is saying that he speaks under and with the authority of Christ, and if that's not enough, he was also directly related to Christ himself. So within the first line of his letter, Jude has already established his credibility so that the recipients of his letter do not push him away as one of the false prophets Jude himself is talking about. They're not like, oh, we don't want you because we don't like what you're saying. (laughs) Um, Then moving on to the letter's recipients, in the second second part of verse 1, to those... We read, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. The word called here is often misinterpreted to be an optional action. Take it or leave it. Like, oh, God is opening a door for me and I can go through it or I could go this way or that way or whatever. I, I choose my faith. When in reality... It's God, God's calling in this sense is irresistible. If God desires someone to come to Him, that person cannot refuse because as we see in Romans 9, 19-21, none can resist His will. Romans 9 says, You will say to me then, why does He still find fault? For who can resist His will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What will, will what is molded say to His molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? 
So, it's paralleling Romans here. None can resist God's will. That's what this called. This word "called" is meaning. And then all who are called by God will come to faith in Jesus Christ and are, the text says, beloved by God the Father and kept, let's see, where am I? And kept for Jesus Christ. So, God not only calls us, but He also keeps us for the day of redemption, which is when Christ Jesus returns. So, we not only are called by God, we are also, our faith is also sustained in Him until we see Christ face to face. And Jude finishes his introduction with verse 2 as a sort of prelude to what is to come. He says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. These ideas of mercy, peace, and love are laced throughout the rest of the letter. And since I'm planning to address these later in later sermons, we won't spend too much time time talking about these, but uh, here's a little bit. Jude addresses God's mercy in verses 21 to 23, where he prays for mercy upon those who doubt their salvation. And then we find a necessity for God's peace within the church in verses 10, 16, and 19, where Jude addresses the turmoil that false teaching can cause within the body of Christ. And then finally, verse 12 emphasizes the need for the love of God within the church. And that is the end of the introduction, but uh, it still kind of amazes me that Jude was able to firmly establish his credibility, directly address and admonish admonish his recipients, and give a taste of what he's about to say in his next letter, all in only the first two verses. Um, Then moving on to verse 3. Verse 3 is the start of the actual content of Jude's letter. He starts by stating the purpose of his letter up front. It says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. When Jude says contend, he is admonishing his readers to fight for the faith that was given to them. Furthermore, delivered to the saints... Pushes home his uh, pushes home the fact that this salvation is God's work alone. Um, John six forty four. No one can come to me, Jesus, unless the Father draws him. The Greek word here translated as delivered or entrusted in um, verse uh, verse three, once for all, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, is very often used to symbolize the passing down of tradition. This faith is the tradition that he's speaking of. Uh, Jude is not telling believers to fight to retain belief in God. He's not saying, oh, you need to uh, uphold your faith because he's already said that our faith is going to be kept till the day of redemption. We don't need that. Um, Jude already established that this is not necessary. So instead, Jude is exhorting the church to fight against a distortion of the gospel. He is urging his readers to stand against the Christless theology that had crept into the church. He's not arguing against doctrinal differences, though doctrine is important, and some there is definitely doctrine found within the gospel. Uh, instead, his hope is simply to uphold the gospel. 
Jude says that this gospel was once for all delivered to the saints. It was once for all delivered. The canon of Scripture is closed to any editions of this gospel that Jude is preaching. This is the reason that Jude's letter was so urgent. He was aware of false teachers who were distorting the gospel, but the gospel was set, done, untouchable. If anything is added to the gospel, it becomes something other than the gospel. The gospel is complete. It cannot be changed without compromising some aspect of it. Yet, there were some in the church who were trying to change it. (laughs) And there are many people today who are trying to change it. Still, and probably forever. And Jude felt that it was very urgent for him to confront this problem head on. So much so that he even put off writing a different letter concerning their common salvation. The first part of verse 3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Uh, Verse 4 starts with the word for. The word for indicates a continuation of Jude's argument, so it kind of just goes right along with verse 3. This is also one of the first parallels between Jude and 2 Peter. 2 Peter 2.3 says, speaking of false prophets, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And uh, Jude 4, for certain people who have crept in unnoticed, who were long ago designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, When Jude and Peter speak of this designated condemnation, he is referring to the justice and judgment of God seen in the Old Testament. Later in the letter, we will see that this is not a lighthearted judgment because Jude compares it to that of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that was very destructive. The whole whole place was destroyed with fire and brimstone. Uh, This condemnation was designated by God from the beginning and it is repeatedly foreshadowed in the Old Testament in places such as Proverbs 16.4 which says, The Lord has made everything for His purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Or Psalm 92.7 That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. Or even Psalm 1, 4-5, which I preached on a few months ago. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. It is very clear from what Jude is saying that there is no hope for the deceivers who had crept into the church. There is no hope for them to avoid God's condemnation. The second point to be made is the reason for their inevitable judgment. Jude gives three reasons that they are being judged. They are ungodly, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality, and they deny Christ himself. Godlessness, Jude's first reason, is, to put it simply, a rejection of God. It's trying to live without the Lord. Again, Jude is foreshadowing what he is about to say later in his letter. Verses 5-16 through 16 explicitly lay out the ungodliness of the false prophets that had come into the church. And I will talk more about that next time I'm able to preach. Jude's second reason, sexual immorality, is hugely pervasive in today's culture, even in the church. 
And Jude even implies in verses 6 and 7 that part of the reasons that angels fell was because of sexual immorality, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, because he, com- he compares them to their, their fall to that of Sodom and Gomorrah, which Sodom and Gomorrah was, was, uh, fell because of sexual immorality. Um, Jude's final reason is that these false prophets were denying Christ. Jude says that they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Note that He is the only Master. Jesus Himself says that you can only serve one Master in Matthew 6.24. In the same way that Christ is our Master, He is also our Lord. The evidence for Christ as Master and Lord are not found in these false, false teachers. Instead, they are living under the Lordship of their own pleasure. Um, this is the end of Jude's introduction and thesis statement, but before we pray, I want to draw out a couple implications of the first four verses, and really the whole book as a whole. Uh, first, we must know the gospel. If we do not understand the heart of our belief as Christians, we cannot defend our faith, as Jude is telling us here. Instead, we will be caught up in a false gospel that leads to condemnation. We must understand the gospel. Second, and finally, once we understand the gospel, we must fight to uphold it. Just as Jude is doing here in this letter, we need to encourage one another in faith to uphold the gospel that we have been given once for all. Just as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, we must be ready to make a defense of the gospel. Uh, Now, so remember those things as we finish up. listening to this message from Redeemer Baptist Church of Panama. For more information, please visit us at RedeemerBaptistPanama.com or you can like us on Facebook.